So James 3 is where we are this morning as we're going through this great letter of James, James 3. And we're going to be discussing the difference between heavenly wisdom and that of worldly, earthly wisdom. So James 3, we'll look at the ESV translation. This is God's holy and inspired word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. If you were here last week, I talked about there are three major themes to this letter of James. And the overarching theme is, how do you know someone is a Christian? And it's really by how they live, by how they conduct their lives. And there are three areas in which James unpacks as we talk about being faithful to the Lord. And the first area is we are to care for the poor and for the needy. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we talked a lot about that in James chapter 2. The second area in which we know a person is a Christian by their faithful walk with the Lord is by what they say and by what they don't say. The taming of the tongue, which we talked about in great detail last week and how it's important to practice what we preach and to watch what we say. And then the third area that we need to focus in on as Christians to be genuine Christians is that of avoiding worldliness. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to today and through the rest of the summer as we look at the rest of this great letter of James. And, and there are many ways in which we can avoid worldliness. And the number one thing we need to think about when we think about avoiding worldliness is wisdom, heavenly wisdom. To avoid worldliness is to seek the ways of the Lord and to seek his wisdom. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few questions that James addresses in our text. First is, what is worldly wisdom and what is heavenly wisdom? Second is, where does this wisdom come from? Third is, what does this wisdom look like? And fourth, what is the outcome of living a worldly life? And what is the outcome of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? So the first question that James addresses is, what is worldly wisdom and what is heavenly wisdom? As you look at verse 13, he, he asks a question, who is wise and understanding among you? And he answers that question by saying, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So who is wise? How do you determine if a person is wise or not? Well, you determine if they are wise by the way they conduct themselves, by their actions, by their works, by their deeds, by their lifestyle, by the choices they make. Every day we have to make choices. And you will show your wisdom in the right choices that you make. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and, this, and my house, we will serve the Lord. You make that choice every day. That's how you determine true wisdom from, from, from uh, worldly wisdom. And so James says, 
in order to understand a wise person from an unwise person, you, you watch and you observe over time, and you will see that they live a life of faithfulness and that of consistency. And he described how the number one thing you have to think about when it comes to heavenly wisdom is meekness, humility. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness, humility. You can't have true wisdom apart from humility. It's humility that leads to wisdom. Because after all, we have to humble ourselves before an almighty God and he will lift us up. In his time, in due time. So we need to be reminded that in order for us to seek wisdom, we have to humble ourselves. And he will lift us up. Now, when we think about earthly wisdom, what do we think about? Well, verse 14 tells us. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts... That leads to boasting and leading to to untruth or things that are not true. It says false to the truth is the translation here. You know someone is wise when they humble themselves before the Lord. But if they're jealous and selfish, they are unwise. They're seeking wisdom from this world. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is a great passage for us to think about where God's people, they were entering the promised land, and this is the directive that God gave them. He said, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of your peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So over time, people will know that we are wise people because we follow the word of God. We follow his word. But if we don't follow him, then ultimately we're people who are seeking um, selfishness and we are jealous and envious people. Now today is a day in which we think about the 4th of July. And so I can't go without giving an American history example or a political example. And as I was studying for this sermon this week, I, I, ca- I couldn't help but think about George Washington. And people ask me in those icebreaker games, you know those icebreaker games that you do in small groups or just to break the ice, one of the questions is, if you were to meet anybody in history, who would you meet and why? Well, outside of, of any of the people in the Bible, the person I would want to meet outside of any of the people in the Bible would be George Washington. And why is that? Well, because as you study his life, you see that this man was a man of faith, he wasn't perfect, he was, flaw- he was, he was a, a sinner like you and me, but he was a man who promoted modesty and humility. As I was learning more about Washington this week, did you know that after he won, and, they, and we won the Revolutionary War, that right after, he, re- he, he, he gave up his leadership, and he retired. He said, I'm done, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to enjoy Mount Vernon and enjoy my family and enjoy the community. But you don't need me to lead you. I'm moving on. That was his heart. His motive was pure. He said, I don't need to be king. In fact, you don't need a king. The people will rule. And so I need to step aside and I'm going to relinquish my power. 
Uh, he said this, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted. I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. This revealed to the people an astonishing act of self-restraint. Here is a man who could have easily become the next American Julius Caesar, but he refused. He could have become an emperor, but he said, no, I'm going to relinquish my control and my power because that's not what we want this country to be. We want this place to be where people are not power hungry, but instead they want to care and love their families and support their communities. You know, there was one person that George Washington admired, and he was a man named Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a Roman general, and he had retired from his military service. And it was during a day where Rome was about to be invaded by an enemy. And so they, they call Cincinnatus, the leaders call, call him up, and they said, General, we need you back to defend our homeland. And so he said, okay, I'll come out of retirement, but just for the short time. He came out of retirement, and in 15 days, he held back the enemy from invading their homeland. And they won the war. And then after 15 days, Cincinnatus said, all right. I'm going back to retirement. <laughs> I'm retired, and I want to stay retired. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And he went back home, and he retired off and danced into the moonlight. George Washington loved that example, and he said, I want to live that example, and I want to promote modesty and humility to others so that they live by this example too. He didn't want to leave his home in Mount Vernon, but he reluctantly accepted a call to chair the Constitutional Convention in 1787, so he went back. But this time he wasn't a general in the military. This time he was the chair of the Constitutional Convention. And a year later he was elected the first president, a time where there were no term limits. So once again, he could have pushed no term limits. He could have said, no, I'm going to stay in power till I die. I'm going to do this till I die. But he knew that humans were flawed and he knew that the more power that was given to a person, the more arrogant that person could become. And so there were even things that he did. I didn't know this, but there were even things that he did where he would never wear his military garb as president. Uh, he also would never be referred to as Mr. President or Sir or General. He said, just call me Mr. Washington. He rejected these honorific titles because, again, he wanted to promote humility and modesty. And he said, I'm no better than any of, any of you. In his second inaugural address, he reminded the citizens that they should not bow down before him or any other future president, that they were merely his peers, and they even had the power to impeach him. He said, again, there will be no kings who will rule. The people will rule. And in his farewell address after two terms, he said, I'm two terms, I'm term limited, I'm done, I'm going back home. He urged his fellow countrymen not to descend into partisan acrimony. He shared that the abandonment of shared principles would be the most likely way America would come apart. If America is going to die, Washington warned, it wouldn't be because of military battle, it would likely be by suicide. 
We're there today, aren't we? We no longer have the shared values that we once had. And look at where we are now. The goal of an election, Washington said, is to determine who will best steward this experiment in self-government for a short season and then return to their farm, to their small business, and what we would call the Rotary Club today. That was the goal that Washington wanted to promote and that he did promote, and he lived it out. Humility reveals heavenly wisdom. It reveals heavenly wisdom. But what about earthly wisdom? Where does earthly wisdom come from? We know that heavenly wisdom comes from above, but what about worldly, earthly wisdom? James tells us in verse 15, this is not the wisdom, earthly wisdom is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. My friends, this is where we get the whole idea of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right here, this verse. The three areas that, that lead us into sin, the world, the flesh, the devil. Right here, James 3.15. First, the world, earthly. What does it mean? It refers to a mindset that does not consider God's sovereign rule over creation. It's limited to the present material world. It's only focused on the here and now. You all know I love music. And I really like Frank Sinatra. I'll be honest. I like Sinatra. You know that song, I did it my way. <laughs> That's Sinatra. I did it my way, by golly. Burger King, have it your way. That is earthly, worldly wisdom. I did it my way. I'm going to do it my way. Selfish ambition. That's what worldly wisdom is. It's a closed system. That's what it is. And we need to be weary of it. Think about the slogan, look out for number one. Think about all the myriad of isms that we have surrounding our institutions today. Humanism, secularism, liberalism, consumerism, materialism, pragmatism, ism, 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 ism. What is that? That is worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. You know, as I uh, was watching the news a few weeks ago, my wife was glued to the TV when we were watching the submersive, submersible. And it was scary. And we were all just kind of watching to see what would happen. And we thought, these men only have 18 hours left of oxygen that they can breathe in in this small little submersible. What's going to happen to them? We found out that shortly after they descended into the water, they died. There was an implosion. And then after we found that out, we discovered that there were some rules that were broken in the creation of the Titan submersible. OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, he was interviewed in 2021, and he said these words. He said, I think I've broken some rules with logic and good engineering behind me. He said, carbon fiber and titanium, there's a rule that you don't do that. He went on to say, he quoted General MacArthur, and he said, you're remembered for the rules you break. That was one of the most tragic events, I would say, in recent history, maybe all of history. He was a successful CEO that said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to break the rules. And it cost him his life and four others. My friends, that's worldly wisdom when we seek to do things our way. 
James goes on to say it's not just it's not just worldly earthly wisdom, but it's also wisdom that is unspiritual. Another translation uses the word natural. Natural. When I think about unspiritual natural, I think about the flesh. The flesh. It's our sinful fallen nature where we before the Holy Spirit invades us and changes us we are totally depraved our whole being our bodies our minds our thoughts are sinful our inclinations are sinful because we're natural men and women in order to understand the supernatural we have to be supernaturally changed so to understand a supernatural god he has to enter us he has to invade our minds and our thoughts and and win over our affections, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. And as he does that, as we tune into his word, he illuminates our minds so that we begin to understand spiritual things, heavenly things. But it's by the grace of God. It's not our natural tendency to open up the Bible and to read it. Our natural tendency is to run away from God, like Jonah. That's our natural tendency. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We are unable to understand God because we're fallen. We're sinful. We're totally corrupt. We're depraved. So that's what it means when I say the flesh. Our sinful, corrupt nature. But the third thing that defines uh, the worldly wisdom of the day is that of demonic. And that it's authorized by the devil and it's demon-inspired. You think about Satan, how he promises, he promises things, but yet he knows that those promises will not be kept. Think about what he did with Eve. Eve, if you just eat from that tree, you will be like God, and you'll be able to determine right from wrong, good from evil. As I think about what Satan does today, I think about all the other major world religions out there. Think about Mormonism, what they promote. When you die, you can be the God of your own planet is what Mormons would say. Hindus, hey, you can believe in many gods. Heck, you could even be a god. Buddhism, hey, there's reincarnation. Nirvana, you reach a state of nirvana, and then maybe you die, and you can come back and something else. That's what the world is promoting. And who is the author of this? It's Satan. It's not just Satan at work, but it's his demons who are all over the place. And they're trying to invade our minds. They're trying to invade our hearts. They're trying to invade our churches. They're trying to invade our families. That is worldly wisdom. And that's where it comes from. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So what does this worldly wisdom look like? James repeats himself in verse 16. Jealousy and selfish ambition. What is jealousy? Jealousy says, if I can't have it, then nobody can. Jealousy is a strong sense of envy. It's a feeling of envy. You want that person to suffer if you're suffering. It may lead to a fierce desire to promote one's own opinion to the exclusion of others. I want it my way. My opinion's right. Yours is wrong. I'm not even going to hear you out. That's the kind of world we're living in right now. This whole political debating and fighting. We don't even hear each other anymore. We're just fighting. Selfish ambition. This could be referring to political ambition in the church, the context here. And that's why if you go back to James earlier in James 3 verse 1, he's warning teachers not to, not to teach. He's, he's telling some people don't be teachers. 
Why? Because they can abuse their authority. But selfish ambition also can refer to that of sectarian rivalry or partisan politics. People who are in angry competitions towards one another and are undermining each other. People who fight for their own rights and they don't listen. Think about the infighting that's taking place amongst parties and amongst churches and denominations, even amongst family. You know, the the two things people always tell you to avoid at family dinners, politics and religion. Those are two of the most important things we need to talk about. (laughs) Yet it's easy to avoid it because we just fight. Why? There's jealousy, there's selfish ambition that takes place. And so when there is jealousy and selfish ambition, what's the outcome? James tells us in verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Disorder, chaos, brokenness, factions, death, destruction. Disorder is unstable, it's uncontrollable, it's restless. Disorder is anarchy, where people don't follow rules. They do whatever they want to do. I've shared this before several years ago, but about five years ago, I went to Athens, Greece. I've been there twice. We have a great partnership with the church there in Athens. And (laughs) the second time I went, I took a group of you, and we went, and it was during the refugee crisis, and we we helped with a lot of refugees. It was nuts. But when we were there, we uh, we didn't know this, but we stayed in the anarchist capital of the world. (laughs) It's a a town of 150,000 people. And they pride themselves on being anarchist. They promote anarchy. And so they didn't care about us tourists. They said, oh, Americans, as long as they, they eat you know, at our restaurants and they don't bother us, we, we, they're fine. They can do whatever they want. But I heard that whenever a leader, a political leader, would enter this town of 150,000 people, it's called Excardia, they would have to disguise themselves. Because otherwise, they would be quickly identified and they would be mobbed and beaten up. Cops could not go in by themselves. They always went in a group of 10 or 12 in this town. Because if you came in in your uniform by yourself, you'd get, you'd get beaten up. Why? Because this town, they said, we don't need government. We're going to do whatever we want to do. It was nuts. There was one night right next to our hotel where I saw, I kid you not, about 15, uh, 15 military and, and, and civilian cops that were together. And they had shields over them, and there were bottles that were lit on fire being thrown at them. (laughs) This is right in front of our hotel. I'm thinking, well, this is crazy. These guys are, the the, the people I took on the mission trip, I said, these members are never going to go on a mission trip with me again. (laughs) But it it was absolutely insane. And that week in Greece, we were there eight days. Not only were we caring for refugees, and that was nuts. The economy's in shambles. The metro was closed down three different times in eight days because of a strike. And that was outside of the town that we were in. Anarchy, mass chaos. What is that? That's worldly wisdom. That is the earthly wisdom that's at play at its finest, at its greatest. Many of you have seen rebellious kids, and we all could probably name a few of them. And we're all wondering, how, why are they so rebellious? Why doesn't mom and dad just, you know, straighten them up? And they're just wild. They do whatever they want. Chaos. Rebellion, disorder. And if we seek the ways of the world, that's the result. That's the outcome. Chaos, disorder, no structure to it. That is earthly wisdom. But what about heavenly wisdom? 
Let's talk positively now. What about heavenly wisdom? Verse 17, wisdom is from above that is heavenly. I read earlier Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He's the one that gives us wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, if you fear the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. But if you seek earthly wisdom, then you won't fear the Lord. You won't have any regard for him. You won't be in awe of him. You won't revere him because you're thinking about you. It's all about me, the world would say. But heavenly wisdom says it's all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. I'm going to honor him and lift him up. How do you get this heavenly wisdom? Well, the word of God. And that's why we need to be adamantly studying this word. It's sacred. It's holy. But the other way in which we get heavenly wisdom is we ask the Lord for it. We talked about this earlier in James chapter 1, verse 5, when James said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. How do we get this heavenly wisdom? We ask him, Lord, give me this wisdom. Think about Solomon. He could have asked for anything, and he said, I want to be wise. And God gave him wisdom and many years of great peace in the land. He was known as the wisest man who ever lived. Read Proverbs. You'll see it. Wisdom, because God gave it to him. So what does this heavenly wisdom, what does a life that is seeking heavenly wisdom look like? And this is where James gives us several words to think about. And we're just going to briefly look at them, very briefly. But there's seven words he gives us. But what I want you to do as we look at these words is not get lost in these seven words. I want you to think about them in two clusters, two groups. The first three words, it emphasizes that of unity and cooperation amongst the church. The second, or the four other words, the second part or group of clusters, I want you to think about individual faith and responsibility. So the first group, he goes on to say, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. What is, what is he getting at here? Well, first he talks about purity, and he's talking about a unified church. What does he mean by that? Pure, undefiled, morally pure. It is being unstained by the world. They are not double-minded, but focused on the Lord when you're pure. When I think about this, I think about how we are not to allow the world to infiltrate our churches and our families and our own lives. It doesn't mean we completely isolate ourselves from the world. My friends, we need to have non-believing friends. If you don't have a non-believing friend, you're doing something wrong. You need to know non-Christians. So please don't completely separate yourself from the world because you're saying, I don't want to be stained by this culture. Yes, we don't need to be stained by the culture. But at the same time, we need to befriend non-Christians because how else will they come to faith in Christ if we don't befriend them and tell them about Jesus? But Jim Barnes, my predecessor, he used to always say this, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. If you're filling your minds with garbage, it's going to come out. If you're filling your life with garbage, it's going to show. Garbage in, garbage out. Be careful not to be stained by the world. The second word is peace-loving. This does not mean we walk away from conflict, but we pick our battles wisely. Not everything, my friends, needs to be a hill to die on. Karen Trent, our children's director, she always jokes with me and she says, Seth, you always talk about hills that you're going to die on. 
I'm like, yeah, there's a few hills, but I don't have that many. But the ones that I have, yeah, we're going to die on it, by golly. But there's others that we don't need to die on. Not everything needs to be a hill. We need to be peacemakers. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's pursue that. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's try to cooperate with one another. Let's try to listen to each other. Let's give each other the benefit of the doubt before being quick to judge or to push away. And we're in such a hostile culture now where we don't want to hear from people that we disagree with. We need to at least hear from them and listen and try to seek to understand before being understood. So again, peacemaking. The third thing we need to think about is to be considerate, kind, gentle, reasonable, fair-minded, willing to yield, not quick to demand. Again, these are these three things, these three words that James gives us when we think about heavenly wisdom, they're marked by peace and cooperation instead of strife and competition. Instead of selfish ambition and envy, it's more about peace. Let's seek the peace. Let's try to mutually come up with a solution together. Let's have shared values as Washington wanted. So again, it's all about being peace in the church and unity in the church. And I would argue we can take this into the world, into our nation too. The second cluster of words promote individual faith and wholehearted living. He goes on to say that we are to be Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Open to reason means submissive. We're willing to submit to persuasion. We're accommodating. We're willing to defer to others when appropriate. I'm going to give another history, American history example. But Abraham Lincoln, I learned this this week. I didn't know this. But there was a time where he was trying to just please one of his colleagues, a politician, and what he was going to do is he was issuing a command as president to transfer certain regiments. Like he was taking a group of military men and he was going to transfer them to another place. Well, when word got out to his secretary of war, Edwin Stanton, Edwin Stanton, he received this order to transfer these men to another brigade. And he said, I'm not going to do it, Mr. President. He refused the order. And so <laughs> Lincoln, when he was told this, he said, well, if Stanton said I'm a fool then I must be, for he's nearly always right. And he said, I'll see it for myself. So he ended up bringing in the Secretary of War, and he said, okay, why won't you agree to this order? This is an order. Why don't you agree to it? And he told him the reasons why, and Lincoln quickly rescinded the order. He said, you're right, Stanton. You're right. I was wrong. And he humbled himself. What a great leader. To be willing to yield when you're wrong. You hear something, you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I was wrong. Man, let's don't do that. Let's go in a different direction. That is, that is heavenly wisdom. Submissive, open to reason. Another word that James uses is mercy, acts of undeserved kindness. Where you don't give people what they deserve, but you show mercy. And then you show grace. You give them what they don't deserve. You give them a gift. Impartial, it means steady, unwavering is really the Greek here, unwavering, not to be parted or divided, not to doubt, treating everyone equally without favoritism. This is heavenly wisdom. And the last word he uses is sincere, without hypocrisy, 
Jesus mentions this four different times in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be judgmental. Don't be double-minded. But instead, be sincere without hypocrisy. So again, this is the, the descriptive words of what heavenly wisdom is. And it's beautifully written by James through the Holy Spirit. So what is the outcome? We know the outcome of earthly wisdom is disorder and chaos and anarchy. What about heavenly wisdom? What's the outcome? Look at verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who promote peace. What happens? Righteousness. As I prayed earlier, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to a people. Righteousness exalts a nation. How do we get righteousness? Well, only Christ gives it, but it's through his peace. He's the prince of peace. And so as he fills us with his peace, we then, in turn, are peaceful to others, and we're peacemakers. And we promote unity and harmony and not division. So as you're interacting with other believers of different denominations, don't focus so, so much on the differences and what divides us. Focus more on the things that unite us, especially the core essentials of the faith. Now, there are some churches that don't need to be churches. Let's be honest. There are churches that say they're churches, but they're not. Don't waste your time with that. But I'm talking my Southern Baptist friends. I'm talking my Missouri Lutheran, my Missouri Synod Lutheran friends. I'm talking my conservative Anglican friends. Hang out with them and say, yeah, we might do a little differences thing, you know, with baptism or with some of our end times views, but we're, gonna, we're just going to agree to get along and let's serve the Lord together. That's the spirit we need to promote. 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. A lot of you are going on vacation this summer or have been on vacation. Vacation's fun, but you know it only lasts for a short season because after about seven days, you start getting tired. Why? Because there's no order. There's no structure. Especially if you don't have anything planned, you just go to the beach. It's like, well, we're going to go to this place today to eat. It's fun at first, then it gets kind of tiring. And you're thinking, well, I'm ready to get back to work and get structure in my life. We have four little kids, and our house is chaotic right now. And my wife is um, OCD. <laughs> she loves everything in order. This has really stretched her. She's the only child. She grew up as the only child. She's got four kids in this house, and I'm an extrovert, and we're all extroverts. And she's like, man, this is exhausting. She and the, the girls are in Missouri visiting family this week. I've got my son, Caleb, for five days, and, and we're going to be gone the next couple weeks. That's why I'm here. But, uh, but, I, uh, but I've, I told Caleb, I said, we, we need to clean tonight or tomorrow. We're going to clean tomorrow, not the Sabbath. We're going to clean tomorrow so when mom and the girls get back, she'll have a clean house. It's chaos. The house is chaotic. It's messy. And so we're going to be spending hours tomorrow just cleaning up, you know, but it's important for her. But I bring that up because... Let me ask you a hard question to finish out this, this message. What is messy right now in your life? What needs to be cleaned up? What is out of order? We all have something. I was convicted this week. I'm thinking, man, I, I need to get back, to, get back in shape. I need to eat a little bit better. I need to schedule my time. There's a lot of things I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm a little disordered, disorganized right now. What about you? Do you find yourself that way? And if you do, I would just encourage you to, again, 
just relax a minute. (laughs) Seek the Lord and ask him to fill you with his wisdom so that you can have order and structure in your life. Because we were designed to be orderly and to be structured and organized. We weren't designed for disorganization and chaos. Because that's worldly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom is that of order and structure. Because after all, it's for our own 